Goodbye Forever, Volume 2, Chapter 2, Part 1. <coughs> Good evening. Chapter 2, No Difference Coming, January 1972. Electric music, not Tibet coming. Electric guitar, not Africa coming. England language, not black American coming. England language, England coming. In West, all cultures everywhere going. Everything, everyone belonging. All foods eating. All wines drinking. All clothes wearing. Black American music, all young people's music inside. No difference coming. Farnham Art School, lunchtime. A day on which I was not required as a life model at Guildford or Farnham. I sat on the steps of the new Farnham Annex of the Art School, having concluded an intense life drawing session. A hundred sketches of figures in motion. The timing of these sessions varied from 10 seconds to 30 seconds. Discombobulating for a slow, careful draftsman. At first, the drawings were appalling. But as the session proceeded, I got a feel for the way lines could move in peripheral vision, tracing the movement of the model. By the end of the session, I could see the value of the process in terms of intuitive hand-eye coordination and in terms of meditation. As advised, I stopped thinking about the end result. I kept focus on describing movements in the visual field. In one way, this was easier for me than the others, as the instruction not to think was not new. What was not easy was abandoning the habitual attention to precise detail. When I was 16, I'd copied a poster of Jimi Hendrix as an oil painting on architect's photographic linen. School friends were astonished by the accuracy of the painting. For me, however, it was not particularly astonishing. Because photorealism merely requires patience and close attention. What was astonishing to me was launching myself into the unknown with pencil and paper, drawing lines without judgment. This was where Buddhism and art school coincided, where I could be a practitioner entirely within the bounds of the project at hand. Maybe Dujum Rinpoche had known that this was how art school would be. Maybe that is why Dujum Rinpoche instructed me to continue my art education and obtain a degree. I decided that I would write about the experience of non-conceptual drawing in order to be able to explain it all to him when I next saw him. 
That would be the October of 1975. I felt fortunate to be more or less an art student during my year out. I worked off and on as an art school model and when I wasn't working, I took life drawing classes. John Morris had set that up and I made full use of the opportunity. John Morris was the head of the foundation course and gave me a great deal of help. He'd thought it wise to take a year out from art school to decide what direction I'd take. It was seeming as if fine art was not my best option, even though I saw myself as a fine artist. I was a confirmed figurative artist, and so a fine art degree would not have been what I wanted. As the emphasis in art schools was on abstract expressionism. It looked, therefore, as if I was headed for Bristol, as it was the only full-time illustration degree in Britain. Illustration, John Morris had told me, would allow me to develop my passion for combining word and image. And the Bristol illustration degree course was known to be liberal with regard to giving plenty of leeway to figurative fine artists who opted for illustration to avoid being channelled into abstract expressionism. Anyhow, there I was, sitting in the unusual January sunshine. I decided I'd play some harp. A black American third-year fine arts student called Frank Berger sauntered down the steps and hailed me. Man, you play that thing like a fucking nigger. Thank you very much indeed, Frank, I beamed. Can't tell you just how much I appreciate that. That's exactly how I wanted to sound. Frank grinned broadly and sat next to me with a can of beer, listening to me blow an extended train time. Yeah, man, you'd do that thang real well. If and you was down in Mississippi or Louisiana someplace, you could have played harp with anybody. That would be a fine thing, but that's pretty unlikely. No, man, no way. Not unlikely at all. Maybe I'd have to be there, you know, else y'all might get eight. There's some right fine big leg mamas down there. I heard that. Frank. Sounds like a good place. Then I gave a blast of the harp and sang, Ah, big leg mama, get your big leg over me. Said big leg mama, get your big leg over me. Well, you know, I ain't tired, but I'm as sleepy as any honky has a right to be. Frank laughed a fit at the word honky and said, Man, you ain't no regular honky, that's for sure and for certain, and I bet you ain't afraid of no big leg mamas either. Even though, Frank laughed, they might just eat a white boy like you for breakfast. I'm 
Game for being eaten, Frank, I grinned. To be honest, I'm a little weary of middle-class white girls. Well, they're snooty parents, that is. They all died in the war to save Britain. And they've got me pegged as a deranged criminal who's ruining this green and pleasant land as badly as the Nazis would have done. Yeah, ma'am, but not all Nazis are German. Whole slew of Nazis round Farnham, you know. Frank drawled with a shake of his head. Too many folks follow orders without understanding the nature of their obedience. Some old stiff said something about Negroes in my hearing just last week, and I found myself having to say, You, sir, can kiss my entire black ass. Should have seen his face. I bet, I laughed rather loudly. Love that expression, though, Frank. Think I might need to try it out. Mind if I run it past you? Go ahead. You, sir, can kiss my entire ass. Yeah, well, good start, but you gotta get more music in it, Vic. Like this. Frank struck a defiant posture and announced dramatically, You, sir, can kiss my entire ass. All right, Frank. Pause for the adoption of a defiant posture. You, sir, can kiss my entire ass. Better, bro. <coughs> Better, bro, but you still got that slight Prince Charles sound with it. Prince Charles? Give me a goddamn break, I laughed. That's better, that's better. Now say it again, just like you did then. You, sir, can kiss my entire ass. Righteous, bro, that's more like it. Never thought I'd be giving no English dude elocution lessons. You know, I think you and me, well, we's hit out free, man. Free of race and place and time and culture. And man, that's the only space to be. That's about the shape of it, Frank. Like, you can blow that blues out here and that's cool. But you ought to be able to play that down south, where I come from. Only there'd be a few people with tight asses about it. It ain't no good to have tight ass ideas. That's why I'd have to show you round so people would know it was all right and nobody had turned their shooter on you. I'd really like that, Frank. If we stay in touch, I'll do my best to make it over to America after my degree course is done. It would be a big thing for me to play down in the Delta, but I'd have to go in the winter, otherwise I'd fry. Like deep-fried southern chicken, Frank laughed. I just bet you would. We sat for a while, gazing into the distance, and after some minutes, Frank said, Yeah, you know what you said this morning? I've been thinking on it. What was that, Frank? Why, that too many people got no sense. There's not free in vigils. 
You said plenty peoples came in vigils in their sixties and owe their individuality to it, but then they seem to let it all go. Yes, I see that happening. God am shame. Doesn't have to be to be that way though. I'd like to be able to tell people that, you know, write a song or something. Yes, sir, gotta hang with it. Gotta hang with it. Quite, you have to seize the day, carpe diem. You have to seize the essence of whatever allows you to become an individual. Man, that's so true. Invidiality surely is the first step on that road to freedom. Do you ever read that Jean-Paul Sartre trilogy? Tried man, too damn depressing. There's only so much I can stand reading about the meaninglessness of life. I mean, jeez, give me a goddamn break. Know what you mean, I laughed. I read them all. Maybe just because I'm addicted to finishing books once I start them. But I should have bailed out as you did. Yeah, well, I'll always bail out. Ain't always a smart bailout. But maybe that time I was right. That Sartre dude, or his character anyhow, wasn't no free individual. You gotta get to be an individual or you ain't worth doodly squat. Frank noticed my expression. Doodly squat, that means insect shit. Like it ain't worth nothing. I'll remember that one, Frank. It's a good one. But when I talk about individuality, I don't mean the cult of the individual. That's as bad or worse than being a follower of fashion. Cult of the individual? Yeah, individuality can turn into some kind of fetish or preoccupation. And that's just another trap. How's that then? Well, what I mean by the cult of the individual is the idea that individuality is a birthright and you don't have to work for it. You absolutely have to work for it. Then there's another thing. I don't think you become an individual by wanting to be different, per se. You see, some people just get as quirky as possible. Then they feel they have the right to demand that they're either as important or more important than those who've worked hard and are genuinely creative. Yeah, I've seen that, bro. A lot of that about. Zero talent with a fucking big mouth. Shithead, dumb-ass celebrities jerking off on people. Everything getting interpreted on how it makes them look. Absolutely. In a nutshell, Frank, pseudo-individuals demand recognition, whatever the deal. They need praise for what they tell you they are, rather than what they actually are. So how would you define a free individual? Hmm. 
that's a hard creature to define. I need to be sure I really was a free individual before I could be too precise about that. Oh, hell, man, just get on in. Well, a free individual is someone who appreciates the sense fields. And if you appreciate the sense fields, you're free to appreciate others. I mean, if you can't appreciate others, if you can't be kind and open, you're not a free individual. Amen to that, bro. Frank and I sauntered off after a while and found ourselves at the Hop Blossom. You could get a good lunch at that pub. It was small and had a snug, a little side room. The Rover's return in the, in the television soap Coronation Street had a snug, where Ina Sharples, Minnie Coldwell and Martha Longhurst took their evening tipple of stout. The Hot Blossom was a pub that had imposed dress and hair restrictions. But as long as I was with Frank, there was no problem. It amused Frank enormously to observe racial prejudice in reverse. The only reason we were not thrown out was because Frank was black. <coughs> Frank was black, but he also had long hair, so their hands were tied. They couldn't refuse him admittance because he was black. And, then, and thus they couldn't refuse me admittance because I had long hair and Frank also had long hair. Bon appétit. The homemade steak and kidney pies at the Hot Blossom were quite something. We tucked in, two each, with chips. That life drawing sure gives a man an appetite, Frank grinned. Never a truer word was spoken, Frank. What got you into blues, then? Long story, but it was a gentleman called Mr Love. That's quite some name, bro. Mr Love, Frank drawled. Never thought of his name like that before, Frank. You know, that's hysterical. But no, he was nothing at all like that. He was a charming elderly English gentleman, very kind and, well, I'd call him an individual. Then I told Frank the whole story. Whoa, man, that's quite some history you got there. Quite some history. And that cycle ride to meet Papa Legba. That was far out, man. You are one far out motherfucker. That made me laugh. Guess you ain't never been called a far out motherfucker before. Well, that's like a compliment, you know. I thought it was, Frank. I'm catching on, you know. Do you know anything about Papa Legba? No, man, nothing. I reckon maybe there ain't no Legba fella. No devil, neither. Good story, though, and 
I've seen some brothers play, sisters too. Maybe they all met Legpa some ways. Maybe meeting Legpa's just what it's called, you know. Maybe it's when blues bites your ass like it bit yours. Yeah, I drawled. I always found myself adopting something of Frank's southern drawl when I was talking with him. I didn't do it on purpose. It just snuck up on me. It sure as hell hit my, bit my ass, Frank. The teeth marks are pretty much tattooed there. And them hellhounds sure got Steve and Ron. Yeah, ma'am. Son of a bitch. They showed it. They showed it. That's about the worst bad luck I ever had.